Hello and welcome to the Stansberry Investor Hour. I'm Dan Ferris. I'm the editor of Extreme Value and The Ferris Report, both published by Stansberry Research. And I'm Corey McLaughlin, editor of the Stansberry Daily Digest. Today we talk with Bob Elliott of Unlimited Funds and formerly of Bridgewater Associates. And before we do that, we're going to talk about housing and the lack of it available on the market today. And remember, if you want to send us a note, send it to feedback at investorhour.com. Tell us what's on your mind. That and more right now on the Stansberry Investor Hour. Housing. So we all know that there is, or I hope we all know, (laughs) that there continues to be a a structural shortage. We're at multi-year lows of housing inventory in the United States. And one of the reasons for that is that people don't want to sell their house if they have a 3% mortgage for, you know, a 30-year fixed 3% mortgage. So, I mean, I'm not I'm not mine's 2.8 and I told my wife she wanted to move in 2021 to be closer to the grandkids. I was like, uh, yeah, okay, this will work out, but we are never moving again. Right. Yeah. No, I think we, we talked about this, I don't, I don't remember when it was, uh, many months ago, but this idea, and I'm with you. Yeah, I refinanced, I refied uh, at under, th- under three as well, and because it, obviously it made financial sense, you know, and I think a lot of other people attempted to do that as well if they were paying attention. And those same people, why would you move if if that matters to you, if your mortgage rate matters to you, why would you move in this environment and double your costs? And of course, that does keep housing prices elevated, I think, because no people, fewer people want to move and, and sell well, then that means there's fewer opportunities to buy those same houses. And so despite everything, this economic slowdown where we're talking about housing prices are still, you know, maybe they've gone down a bit in certain, you know, it's a local kind of deal. But um, overall, I think they're they're not, uh, we're not seeing a housing crash by any means, you know, Uh, which I think we've heard, you know, some people speculating about, you know, months ago. So, um, yeah, to me, it, it makes the case for owning real assets again in this inflationary world. Yeah, it does make that case. There's there's an interesting paragraph here from uh, an article in the Wall Street Journal, the article you sent me yesterday when you said, let's talk about this. Um, it's The article is called The Homebuyer's Quandary, Nobody's Selling. And they talk to this young couple um, that doesn't want to move because they've got a 30-year fixed mortgage rate of 3.4%, which they locked in 2021, um, and they don't want to have to take on a 6% mortgage. They said it's, it says uh, that type of home they would want to buy would cost them about $1,100 a month more than they currently pay. And this fellow they interviewed said, I don't feel comfortable paying what I still think is an inflated price for a home and on top of it, paying twice the interest rate. Somehow this spurred a thought. I, um, you know, I, I've had this idea that you just take everything from the last 20 years and invert it. Um, our past podcast guest and my friend Vitaly Katzenelson kind of put that bug in my ear, and I thought, wow, he's right. 
and I really ran with it. And I feel like this is another set of expectations that we built up over the past few decades that is gone. Like you're never going to get a sub, you know, three or sub 3% mortgage again. And, and you're never going to feel like, you know, I don't think home prices are going to crash. I think the structural shortage is really going to keep them not elevated, but you know, it's going to keep them from dropping much. So this guy's like, you know, he's saying it's an inflated price for a home, but I think his expectation is in the past. And I think what looks like an inflated price is probably just the normal price now. Right. And that, that fits with that idea that we, I think we both agree on of the higher rates for longer. Like it, it's not what, <laughs> if you wait, if you're waiting to move now, you know, maybe now's the time to move not, you know, and instead of 10 years from now. <laughs> um, so it's, uh, if, if we're, we're really flipping the, the past 20 or 40 years around and, um, and this inflation sticks around and the central banks of the world keep trying to, to fight it. And the governments of the world keep screwing things up with all the spending and on and on it goes. I mean, why wouldn't we be headed down the path of higher rates in the future? So, yeah, I think, um, the higher for longer still makes a lot of sense. Um, you know, everybody looks at CPI, the fed looks at PCE, and CPI has, you know, the year over year changes dropped from like 9% to whatever they are now, 4.9, 4.93, I think it is. And, and um, you know, PCE has been like within, you know, something like, um, I want to say 30 or 40 bips of 5% for a year and a half. I mean, it's just like, sure, it's come down from its peak, but it's still like, you know, 4.8 or so. So the Fed's favorite, that's the Fed's favorite gauge of inflation, personal consumption expenditures, PCE. So I don't know. It's still, it's still way, way the heck above their target rate of 2%, right? I mean, yeah, I mean, it's, oh, it's, it's more than double what the supposed goal of the Fed and other central banks which, by the way, is a completely, I don't think people understand, it's a completely kind of made-up number. It's, it was something that the major central banks agreed to years ago, the people involved, mm-hmm. for no real reason other than it's what they could all agree to <laughs> that, at the time, for what made sense for policy. And so now that yeah. doesn't, it, maybe that does not make sense anymore, right? And... Right. Um, I think eventually you, you'll probably hear a Maybe year from targeting. now. Hey, oh, okay, we're we're talk we're <laughs> inflation's at three and a half percent. We've won. I think is what how it's going to end up yeah. being. So. <laughs> right, and that's not going to be good because that's a rate that rate is probably too high. And and I think what's going to happen is that they're going to doggedly attempt to beat it back down to two percent. And eventually they will really, they will have to cause a recession, I think, to get it back down there. So I don't know. It, I, uh, of course, you know, we've both been kind of bearish, kind of pretty, I've been really bearish and I know you've been really bearish too, but I just don't see how 
given that set of parameters, we kind of get out of this without without a recession, without problems, without the stock market kind of going sideways and being volatile for, you know, another year, two, three, five, I don't know, 10, you know, big, gigantic mega bubbles are generally followed by sideways markets for 10 or more years. So like none of that would surprise me. Right. And um, I, believe me, I want to be bullish. I want to be optimistic, but I just, right. And I will say, I mean, you call me as super bearish or uh, more than kind of bearish. I mean, I uh, personally, I am, you know, I'm not like not invested in the market just because of these things we're talking about. If anything, I I want it's a a place where you're able to to beat inflation a bit um, done the right way. And so I think in the meantime of all of this, you know, to be invested in high quality companies that are rewarding you along the way um, makes a ton of sense to me and finding those places that in a higher rate world that, uh, that work, I think, you know, you gotta kind of let it work for you too. So, I mean, yes, I'm, I'm bearish on the like central banks, I would say more than anything, uh, being able to, to do what they say or want to do. Not necessarily like I'm, I'm bullish on like humanity in the long run, but I'm bear. I'm, if I could bet against the fed and win, I would, but you know, a lot of times you can't win by betting against them. And you just, that's why they say don't fight the Fed. Right. I don't want to fight the Fed, but I'm, I, I, the thing I bet against is that they know what they're doing and that they really can control a $26 trillion economy from the top down, dorking around with interest rates and acting like they know what the right interest rate is. They don't, they really don't. I think the more they try to set it and the more they try to control it, the less we get to an interest rate that makes sense for the world. You know, I think the market is probably better at that than the Fed will. I know the market is better at it than the Fed could ever be. It's just the way, just the way things work, you know, big complex things that are, you know, involve enormous aggregates of humanity, all acting in their interest to some degree, like, that's too complicated. You can't you can't set it from the top down. And trying to breaks it. It doesn't you know, trying to doesn't help. It hurts. And plus, you have regional banks failing right under the Federal Reserve's nose, like the thing that they can control. <laughs> it's not they can't even control. Like the first thing Jerome Powell says when Silicon Valley Bank thing is happening is how did this happen? <laughs> Aren't you supposed to tell us that? Yeah. <laughs> so sorry. Right. You go ahead. Yeah, that's the thing they're supposed to control. No, you're right. It's um. I mean, I was just thinking about uh, this interview, this recent interview that Jamie Dimon did, and he was talking about that, and he was like, he surprised me. I have to say, he's like, I think of him as like, you know, the Duke of Manhattan, you know, defender of the status quo, protector of the banking realm. He's like, you know royalty or something and um you know because his fortune and his bank are protected by the federal reserve so you know it's like god almighty appoints the you know monarchs and he's one of them god did not see fit to protect your your fortune and mine king jamie's and and his grace recently gave an interview um but he surprised me because he was he wasn't stumping for a big coordinated government central bank solution to the regional banking crisis. He said he thinks it's at the tail end and, and he, 
he didn't, he was like not stumping for more regulation, you know, and more supervision. He was like, well, you know, let's get it clear. The people who are to blame for this are like the management teams, the executives, the boards of directors at the banks. Um, but he also acknowledged that there were some incentives in place for, for certainly the worst of the banks to do kind of dumb things with money. But, you know, I, I normally think of him as, as a guy who defends the status quo, you know, protects whatever's in place and he's like a patriot and whatever the government says, Hey, I'm on board. But I don't know, even he wasn't doing that. And he was actually worried about inflation too. He was like, what if we get another uptick and the, you know, rates are higher for longer. And when you hear a guy who you think of as the keeper of the status quo saying that it makes an impression. Now is some of that maybe, do you think, you know, JP Morgan's the biggest uh, bank on the block and you know the more the he's essentially they could benefit a bit from these smaller banks going out of business and like you were talking about last week with the regulation right. piece a lot of times the regulation yep. helps the the biggest right right and he he sort of acknowledged that and it's funny he says you know we didn't the 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 interviewers are asking about being too big to fail and he said i don't even know what that means anymore i'm like (laughs) okay yeah that means i know what that means yes yeah he he said we didn't mean for it to be an advantage i was like so you know exactly what it means it means that you have a huge advantage because you can't fail and you get to scoop up all these other banks and you know I mean, he's got to say certain things just to keep up appearances or whatever, but we all know the situation, you know, he's backed regional banks. Aren't they can fail. He can't, he gets to scoop them up for a discount. Doesn't have to worry about paying the pesky common and preferred shareholders off. Um, but, but I will say overall, my impression of him was actually improved slightly by that interview. (laughs) Yeah. I I caught a bit of that too. And I think, uh, if correct me if I'm wrong, and I might have missed this part uh, or not thinking on it correctly, but they're preparing for higher for longer rate environment, not the cutting part that a lot of the other parts of the market are. They're preparing for, they're like hedging for for higher rates, if anything. Yeah, he, he subtly mentioned, you know, we didn't buy all those crappy overpriced bonds that everyone else was right. buying. <laughs> so, um, you know, and, and he said... Um, I forget how he put it. I'm sorry. I, I don't remember the quote, but it was very clear that he's still worried about inflation and still worried, you know, what if rates are higher for longer? So, you know, he's been he's been talking about the economic hurricane that he thinks is coming and now inflation, rates higher for longer. Not exactly the status quo, if you look at the way. I mean, since the regional bank thing started, the two-year has gone from like 5% to 4%. 10 years gone from whatever, 4% to 3.4 or something like that. So the bond market thinks, um, you know, inflation is less of a problem than this regional banking thing. And I think it's probably more of a problem. I think we get treasuries and bonds in general kind of re-rated later this year, maybe. I don't know about timing, but it's it just seems like, and you look at the futures market, Fed futures are like, Fed futures are basically saying the Fed's going to hold for the next two meetings in June and July and then cut rates in September. Like they're almost 300 basis points above their target for inflation. You're high. What's going on? It's crazy to me. Yeah. And if that's the case and you say, 
this regional banking thing is more isolated and it passes, then then that gives right. that doesn't give the Fed incentive to uh, cut rates or or at least keep you know no. if anything they'd be right. inclined to keep them where they are at the very least. Right. If, if Diamond is right and the we're at the tail end and it's almost over or something, then the Fed will, will see that too and probably agree with them and they'll say, well, we don't need to worry about the banks. We're not going to break anything else there. We you know we need to keep rates higher for longer or you know raise another twenty five bips or something. I don't know. But we'll see. We'll see how close we get, you know, how close it gets to the target in the next six months. Here. Yeah. I mean, I think a lot of that hinges on where the economy will be at that point, recession or not, what job losses look like. Those mm-hmm. are starting to tick up a little bit more already. Well, what I don't think will have much of an impact is the uh, this debt ceiling debate. <laughs> but I'm just, I bring this up because I'm, as you're talking about yields, uh, treasury yields, I brought up the the one month Right, so this is stuff that um, you know is is reacting sensitively to this uh, to the debt ceiling discussions and, and sure. or whatever you want to call it. One month yield is at five point seven percent right now as I'm talking, and that's up from f- uh, four point five like a week and a half ago, and. I, it's just it just boggles my mind like the stuff that we we're kind of seeing um because i think people are, are f- not fleeing i mean they're not they're, i think people are want to avoid this uh the risk of a of a default which but I, I i just wanted to bring this up because it was one of the more notable kind of moves i've seen lately uh that that might be on some people's mind but already i'm seeing that the like that, that congressional budget office uh, saying, oh, wait, the government can handle stuff until July. Like we won't, it doesn't need, like Janet Yellen said, like that X date, you know, when the, when the default would happen would be, it would be in June. But now uh, the latest reports I'm seeing is like, oh, they can handle things through various maneuvers until July. So I, I'm just pointing this out that I think that whole, that whole thing will be resolved the same way it's been 80 plus t- times in the last you know, however many years, it'll be a higher debt ceiling one way or another. Um, you know, yeah. <laughs> Sorry, um, that was a bit of a tangent, Dan. That, otherwise. That, 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 no, 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 no. I, I agree. The debt ceiling is worth talking about because it's so ridiculous that anybody thinks it's not going to go up. It's so ridiculous that anybody thinks the U.S. could default on its debt. Um, you know, it's just... Diamond was talking about it like it could actually have me said it was potentially catastrophic and it's already affecting the bond market and blah, blah, blah. I'm like, not going to happen. It's a bunch of bluster. Nobody, like no politician wants to go down in history by saying, yeah, we're the ones who caused the U.S. to default on its debts or whatever. <laughs> you know, besides the fact that um, it's the U.S. dollar. So, you know, even if the Treasury can't issue debt, the Fed can like, print whatever it wants and buy as much treasury debt as it wants to. And people say, well, you know, that's, that's terrible. And it is terrible, but you know, it's not fricking Argentina. It's the, it's the U S dollar. And there's, I don't know, I think 15 trillion of dollar debt outside the United States that creates a hell of a lot of demand for dollars and 80% of the world's transaction volume, all the stuff we normally talk about. It's just, there's too much demand for dollars to, worry about that right now all right yeah i think i i 
I think we agree on some things here. And I hope, look, I hate inflation. I hope it is done. And I know you do too. We all do. Um, but it's foolish to get too smug about it, I think. And and it's also foolish to worry too much about the freaking debt ceiling. Of course, they're going to raise it. All right. You know what? There's somebody who has a lot more to say about this and probably knows a lot more about it than we do. And his name is Bob Elliott. Can't wait for you to hear um, this conversation with him. So let's do that. Let's talk to Bob Elliott. Let's do it right now. One of the most notorious months in the investing calendar has arrived with a bang. You've likely heard the expression, sell in May and go away. And after all that's happened this week, you may be tempted to act on it. But I can almost guarantee you've never heard of the earth-shattering Wall Street event headed straight for U.S. stocks in less than 60 days. Now, the date is all set. It's coming. 63 funds are actively preparing to send shockwaves through over 10 trillion of American wealth. And you have mere weeks to get ready before a wave of volatility crashes over half of the U.S. stock market. My good friend and brilliant forensic accountant, Joel Littman, is stepping forward to help you protect yourself and get ready on Wednesday, May 10th. If you have any money in IRAs, 401ks, annuities, pension plans, stocks, or bonds, I urge you to give Joel's warning your most serious consideration. It couldn't be more important to protect your wealth in the weeks ahead. Again, Joel will go live on Wednesday, May 10th with all the critical details. Head to warningfromjoel.com now to make sure you're on his list for updates. Again, that's warningfromjoel.com. Don't miss it. All right, it's time for our interview. Today's guest is Bob Elliott. Bob is the co-founder, CEO, and CIO of Unlimited Funds. Prior to founding Unlimited, Bob was a senior investment executive at Bridgewater Associates, where he served on the investment committee and created investment strategies across equities, fixed income, credit, exchange rates, and commodities, including many used in the flagship Pure Alpha Fund. He also built and led Ray Dalio's personal investment research team for nearly a decade. He's the author of hundreds of Bridgewater's widely read daily observations and directly counseled some of the world's foremost policymakers and institutional investors on economic and investing issues. All right, Bob, welcome to the show. Thanks for being here. Thanks for having me. Really appreciate it. I have to say, I consider having you on the podcast a bit of a feather in my cap. I mean, we've never had anyone from who had worked at Bridgewater before. And, you know, you weren't like the receptionist at Bridgewater. <laughs> you, know, you did some pretty important stuff. So I just, I can't help myself here. Can you just talk a little bit? Because the culture of that firm, you know, the firm itself is famous for, you know, all the things it's done, but, but the culture of it is famous. And that's usually not the case. What was it like? Yeah, a lot of focus has come to the culture. In In reality, I think it's less novel than many people might imagine. Um, there we go. You know, there are characteristics of high-performing organizations, whether they are uh, finance organizations or, you know, elite uh, business organizations that, you know, typically lead to 
the best outcomes. And and I think in a lot of ways, what we see with Bridgewater, what I experienced at Bridgewater for the for the core of the business is uh, it is very aligned with that, which is you know you know you have a intellectual intensity to search for the best ways to do things, whether it's trade markets or uh, the best way to run the business, and then you have you know a willingness to be open-minded to the thoughts of others that are around you who could have good ideas that that come along. And so, you know, I think that those sorts of two core elements of the culture, you know, you can read about Netflix and you can read about the Army Rangers and you can read in all sorts of different circumstances. You basically get the same elements that work out. All right. So I, I had to ask about Bridgewater. It was kind of, I don't know, I feel like it was almost required, but I really, I can't resist kind of diving in because as you and I are recording this, the latest uh, consumer price index dropped and I, I hadn't looked at the exact numbers. In the press, we see, f- you know, it went from 5% last month to 49 this month, but it actually went from 4.985 to 4.93 and we had a short interchange on Twitter, you and I, about this. You know, I said, is this cause for celebration? And then you came back and pointed out, yeah, and what about the fact that we're 300 basis points above the Fed's target? And then I read a great thread that you did and a couple other things that you posted about this. And you pointed out that PCI is like 5% solidly for months. Yeah, um, I mean, I think are squinting at incremental maybe improvements about what's going on with inflation. And I think there's a lot of hope in the market about the fact that the Fed may be making progress on inflation. But when you look at the actual numbers, for instance, if you look at core CPI, you just try and boil it down, right? Because the Fed is not going to, the Fed is taking the gist of what's going on. They're not going to make policy decisions based upon, you know, a particular nuance on airline fares for one month, right? which meaningfully depressed the month over month, mm-hmm. you know, core services X housing number, right? They're not, they're not going to make a bet based on that. What they're going to do is they're going to take uh, a couple of months of information that synthesize what's going on. And pretty much when you look at whatever the Fed looks at, whether you like it or not, whether you think they should be looking at other things or not, that doesn't matter. What matters is what they're looking at. And what they see is 5% inflation on a, longer term and also shorter term basis, whether they're looking at CPI or PCE, whether they're looking at, uh, you know, PCE services, X housing or core CPI or, you know, core CPI, X transportation, medical insurance uh, numbers, you know, kind of whatever they do, they see 5%. And that makes sense because wages are growing about five or 6%. And so, the sort of core, meaning the sort of underlying inflation in the economy, should you know should be growing well above what their target is, and and that's what we're seeing. Right. You also pointed out something, um, like I've been telling people, you know, when it goes from like you know year over year from nine ish percent to five, like you don't get it, it, maybe that's better, but it's not great. And even if it goes down to the target, like the purchasing power is gone, right? And you pointed out. Something I felt was similar today. You said that disinflationary impulses, and I think you pointed to oil and maybe one other thing, are behind us. And I'm telling you, you know, it looks to me like there's, I don't know if it's a consensus, but it looks like a consensus to me that they're ahead. 
that this is a trend. We're in a disinflationary trend. Um, I found that just very, very interesting. Yeah, that you I, pointed I think, that out. You know, in, in some ways, the pace at which oil prices fell and the supply chain issues were resolved in the second half of 2022 surprised uh, most people, myself included, in terms of just how quickly those issues were resolved. And, and what they did is they created a big disinflationary impulse on the inflation numbers. And so as an example, the shift from oil prices going from you know being at $5 a gallon at the at the gas station to being $3 a gallon, that's a pretty big shift in terms of prices. And then similarly, going from you know used autos rising, prices rising rapidly to now to then falling, that was another relatively significant shift in the overall price structure. The trouble is that the sort of underlying inflation in the economy, which uh, you know, which is related to wages and service prices. That didn't really change much. And so once we started to get a flattening out of prices in oil prices and a flattening out of prices uh, when it came to used autos, actually a bit of an uptick. And, and used autos I'm using is just kind of an indication of the similar prices in a lot of durable goods. Those going from falling to flat has actually a positive pressure on, on inflation. And that's essentially what we're seeing which has allowed inflation on a shorter term basis to kind of remain stable at this roughly 5% level and way too elevated for the Fed's preference or target. Right. And that target, I, I feel like we should acknowledge the target um, 2%. And here we are at 5%. Um, I mean, the target itself, I find a bit odd. Well, why target 2%? I've never quite understood it. It's I think we all know it's arbitrary, but why have it at well, all? Well, I think I think the two percent target, I, the it's a balance is the reality of it. When you want to have a little bit of inflation in the economy, because otherwise, in down cycles, you risk falling into the deflationary trap that places like Japan have fallen into over the mm -hmm. course of the last you know twenty or thirty years. And where, you know, where people withhold spending mm -hmm. on expectations of lower prices in the future. And because debts are in nominal terms, you want to continue. Deflation is particularly risky, uh, you know, given that you know, debts are nominal and you have to pay back the nominal dollars. And so that creates a, a deflationary trap or risk of a deflationary trap. So you want it to be above zero. Um, you don't want it to be too high. We start to see meaningful distortive effects both in asset prices and in economic activity once you get sort of above three you start to see you know stocks and bonds start to become more correlated uh, people start to adjust their uh, investment behaviors based upon those expectations and so you know the short answer is you kind of don't want it above three and you kind of don't want it below zero and so yeah two you know that's is it one and a half is it two mm -hmm. is it two and a half like the difference between that, those different levels are pretty, you know, pretty trivial. But it's it's somewhere between zero and three is is ideal. So I, I just wanted to get your take on that. But um, you know, getting back to to what we we're talking about, um, you know, as we look at the market, I mean, you can look almost any place now. But you know, the CME has this FedWatch tool that they use to gauge sort of what the futures market is predicting, and it's basically at this point. 
the next two FOMC meetings flat, no change, and then start cutting in September. It seems to me like that is a tad, oh, I don't know if it's optimistic. If you think cuts are an optimistic thing, then you could say it's overly optimistic. It just seems like the market is in for a, a bit of a surprise and maybe a repricing um, to debt and equity. Yeah, I think um, when you look at that basic pricing and and you know part of what I was trying to draw people's attention to today is okay core inflation core PCE is at five percent. The unemployment rate is at three point four percent, the lowest in fifty years. Under those conditions, the Fed does not cut interest rates, and so in order to uh, get the types of cuts that are being priced into those markets, and particularly in the short end of, of the bond curve, you pretty much have to expect either a relatively significant decline in inflation, an acute, almost instantaneous decline in inflation. Because remember, the, it, it's going to take the Fed three months of data to, to realize what they need to do, right? They don't, they don't respond on a month-to-month basis. They respond, you know, they want to see some smooth set of data. So, You'd have to expect an instantaneous decline in inflation, which seems improbable, or you'd have to expect a total cratering of growth, which, you know, I think there were some folks who uh, were concerned about that related to the regional banks. We haven't seen that play out. We've seen, you know, the, the banks are not doing great, but they're certainly not creating a massive instantaneous credit crunch. And so, you know, to get that sort of pricing and that sort of dynamic, you're basically expecting like a complete halt, almost instantaneous halt of the economy, you know, similar to like when Volcker like first came in and raised interest rates, uh, 700 basis points, and the economy stopped almost on a dime. But even then, it took a few months for that to happen. You're kind of kind of expecting that sort of dynamic in the economy at a time when, you know, there's not a lot of pressures lining up for that to actually occur. Right. And o- overall, I one of the things that um, I've tried to pay a bit of attention to um, is, do I think we're looking at a recession or don't I? And I have to admit, I've been in, I was in the recession camp for some time, but at this point, you know, that I, I, I put it this way, you, you're going to have to show me a lot more than like, you know, housing prices falling off of some massive, you know, high or whatever, um, to believe that that's more likely, you know, as a, as a portfolio decision, I say prepare, don't predict. So, you know, if it happens, I'm prepared, but thinking ahead, I I don't see it again. This points me to like, you know, bond yields falling and, and, you know, fed futures predicting cuts and all that. And I, and I feel like, I feel like the markets are just in for a nasty surprise. Yeah, I mean, it's pretty tough. I, I highlighted um, you know, recently that um, nominal final sales growth for first quarter GDP was mm-hmm. 7.5% annualized. And basically, nominal final sales in the U.S. has been the same, growing at the same pace for the last two years through the first quarter. You know, that's, that's pretty... Pretty incredible when you think about it. Seven and a half percent nominal uh, GDP growth, you know, basically hasn't been achieved sustainably in this country since you know the the early '80s and late '70s. Um, and so that's a very strong set of nominal growth in the economy that 
you know, is not really aligned with uh, a recessionary uh, dynamic going on. And I think an important reason why that is, is because mm -hmm. income growth is very strong. And, and, and that's one of the things that I think many people who are, um, who, who have only sort of lived through cycles like COVID, which was a pretty unique cycle, and, um, and a, a credit-driven cycle like 2008, don't necessarily appreciate that you can have these sort of, let's call it an income-driven cycle, where income growth continues to support spending. And that's really what we're seeing is that you're getting income growth, you know, for uh, the cohorts that have high propensity to spend that is at 6 or 7% annualized nominal income growth. Um, you have a productive capacity of the economy that is, you know, I don't know, one and a half percent. You have product individual labor productivity that's been negative for a few years. And that all aligns with, you know, continued tightening of the overall economy until you get uh, until you break that labor part of the cycle. Like that's the basic thing is you can't just slow credit. Credit has already slowed. Credit had weakened considerably through the first quarter, but nonetheless, nominal final sales growth was at seven and a half percent. So it speaks to the fact that you have to slow incomes. And the way you slow incomes is you've got to start to hit asset prices. And then by hitting asset prices, you start to change the propensity to spend. And then once you change the propensity to spend, you start to hurt earnings. And then once you hurt earnings, you finally start to get some loosening in the labor markets. But that that is the path. And we're not we're not so far down that path is the reality. Right. You started just now talking about price increases. One of the things, um, and I've looked at a lot of conference calls and there's been some press about companies giving up sales volume, lower sales volume in favor, it, it seems, of price increases. I, I don't know what yeah, to make of it, yeah, honestly, think, given other things. Yeah, yeah. I think I think that dynamic is actually really interesting in the market. Um, I'm a, a auto guy by heart, having grown up in Detroit and followed the auto industry for a long time. And I think for many decades, the propensity or the or the um, or the basic approach was high volume sales with you know by through discount. Is the, is the basic issue. And I'm sure anyone who's bought a car remembers going to the lot and negotiating way below MSRP in order to get a good deal. Mm. And I think for in a lot of ways, COVID, because of the supply chain restrictions that occurred, started to reframe mm -hmm. what was the most effective way to become or be profitable from an auto industry perspective. And so what they did instead is because of the supply chain issues, volumes declined considerably, but because nominal demand was still elevated, prices could rise. And so those companies saw elevated significant profits, despite the fact that they were delivering less units than they had before. And so that's a very interesting lesson because what it tells you if you're sitting there is you're saying, well, I actually do have constrained supply uh, and, and constrained capacity, whether it's direct in the sense of you're an auto company and there's only so many factories you want to be operating at a time, or whether it's even like a McDonald's who's like, I only want to hire a certain number of employees because if I try and hire too many employees, then I have to start pay the, paying them more than, than I'd want in order to maintain my margins. And so that lesson actually 
has started to seep into the corporate strategy, which is given the constraints in supply in the economy, both labor and physical supply, let's raise prices and see how far we can go. Let's keep supply constrained so that we don't have to pay up for that supply. And the net effect that a lot of companies are seeing is that's actually a good deal. And if that happens, if that structurally happens, that's a big shift structurally Mm -hmm. in an economy. If companies are pursuing price growth ahead of volume growth to achieve their outcomes. Wow. That would be quite the sea change. And, you know, one could argue, I'm just thinking you go back 40 years to, uh, whatever it was, 15% or 16% treasuries. And that whole period all the way down to 2020 taught us that that's just the way it is. You sell volume, you compete on price. That's life. That's normal. So I feel like a a friend and former podcast guest, Vitaly Katzenelson, he told me a couple of years ago, he said, just take the last 20 years and invert it. And I feel, you know, everything, equity valuations, bond yields, uh, the whole, the whole shebang and, you know, bull market, whatever. And, uh, I feel like you've, you've hit on another yeah, inversion. Yeah, I think it's point a very here. And this is not just, you know, I think the auto industry was a leader, so to speak in this dynamic and in elucidating this dynamic for, yep. you know, corporate executives and other places, sure. but this is not a auto industry only dynamic that's going on. Like if you look at McDonald's, you know, they had double digit um, same store sales uh, reported in their earnings report. And how did that come? Well, two thirds to three quarters of it was from price increases versus volume. You look at a company like, um, you know, a company like Pepsi, where the vast majority, you know, they basically had Mm -hmm. zero volume growth, give or take, and pretty good you know, high single digits, low double digits, nominal sales growth. And they're learning that lesson. And so like mm-hmm. slowly, you know, the airlines, the airlines are a good indication of this, which is they have a constrained number of pilots and planes. And so what are they doing? They're raising prices on airfare and they just keep raising prices on airfare in order to continue to elevate their profits despite not introducing a whole heck of a lot of additional supply. And so this isn't just like one corner of the market. This is like become, you know, a fad in the corporate community. And it's a totally <laughs> different, you know, it's a totally different fad than uh, what anyone basically has seen in their professional careers that's managing money right now. I feel like we should mention housing because it is, it's an important macro sector. Um, and again, there was this really incredible dynamic caused by the pandemic. Um, you know, we all started working from home. People were getting out of cities. Housing prices just soared. I mean, that one uh, quarter, it was just like 20 plus percent. Um, on, you know, if you look at like Case Schiller or something. And, it, you know, this is like the biggest single increase in that type of period that the data had contained. But now maybe we're, you know, we're clearly on the other side of that. Um, and a lot of people like want to say, Look, this is not 2008. And that uh, that's great. Good. I'm glad it's not 2008 because that was very unpleasant. But we 
you know, we did learn that housing prices can fall, and they can fall for like longer than you'd ever suspect, right? I mean, we did learn that at least. From yeah, I think housing, um, even the housing cycle in the U.S., we kind of think about the housing crisis, and often our minds go to the acute financial crisis that emerged, you know, in the in the fourth quarter of 08. And that was a very acute crisis. Once yep. there was real recognition that the banks were undercapitalized and would take substantial losses on their mortgage portfolios. But the reality is that how, how did that housing cycle work out? Well, it, it started to slow in the summer of 2005 and bottomed in 2012. Okay. That's, that's seven years. Like, in the world of an investor, a trader, like a seven-year cycle, you know, you could be dead in seven years, right? I mean, yeah. like, like you just, yeah. figuratively, figuratively well, and literally, hopefully, yeah. hopefully not literally <laughs> for any of us. But, yeah. you know, the, the idea that, um, you know, the housing cycle is very slow moving. And I think people have overestimated how fast the cycle is going to move. And then I think, there are some elements that are incremental in this housing cycle. For the housing cycle, we had a relatively significant um, rise in mortgage rates. That created a slowdown in, in, in housing. That kind of created a blow-off top, I'd almost say, of like, you know, there was a all the sort of frothiest yeah. stuff kind of post-COVID, right after COVID, kind of started to fall. But then mm -hmm. what happened was as yep. mortgage rates sort of stabilized a little bit, you know, housing kind of picked up a little bit. Like, you know, if you look at the MBA uh, applications uh, surveys that are coming, you know, that come out weekly and you can see them, you know, you're seeing a little bit of an uptick in the first half of the year. If you look at the SLU survey for, you know, mortgage demand, it's ticked up in the first half of the year. And so the first part of this year. And so what we're seeing is we're kind of seeing like a, a, a wiggle back upward in the context of what is probably mm -hmm. a seven-year cycle where we, you know, get a reset of housing affordability that comes through a combination of falling prices and rising nominal incomes that eventually will get housing prices mm -hmm. back to something a lot more reasonable that they are now. But like, this is going to be, we're going to be talking five years from now, I'd be happy to come back on your podcast and we'll still be talking about how house prices still are a little expensive and it's still going to take some time for them to fall. Because that's how these cycles work. Right. It's not fast moving. It's not the thing that's going to change the Fed's picture over the next, you know, one, two, three months. Right. It's just not what it is. So, yeah. And I, I said, I, I admit to be having been concerned about housing, among other things. But I always said um, that if I'm wrong about this, it's because there is still a structural shortage, effectively. You know, there's still not nearly the, you know, the supply demand is is not uh, conducive of a bust, put it that, you know, there's, there's no, there's right, no right. bust. I, I think that's actually a really there. important point uh, because there's sort of a structural, uh, supply problem, which is basically after yeah. the 2008 crisis, nobody built any homes for years and years. And so you had millions more household formations than you had housing stock creations. And so that obviously has a struck, you know, we haven't, we haven't made up for that. Following the finance, following the the housing mm -hmm. crisis from 15 years ago, and then you know I think there's a more tactical issue which is important, which.
which is the housing supply, particularly of existing homes, is relatively constrained as well. Because basically, if you are a homeowner, mm-hmm. you locked in a two percent, you know, mortgage rate before COVID or during COVID, yeah. and so you're sitting there going, "Well, like, unless I've got some exogenous reason to move, like." you know, change in a job or a, or a retirement or, a, you know, a, a family life circumstance, there really is no reason to move. There's no reason to transact because you lose the benefit of that low long-term mortgage. And so that that's actually a very interesting dynamic because what happens with that is that there's yeah. no um, new home supply uh, or sorry, there's no uh, existing home supply. Like in, in my area in Fairfield County, I think it's down 80% from pre-COVID. Supply is down 80%. That's incredible, right? You know, there's basically, there's no supply. Mm -hmm. And so actually that's beneficial for the new home builders because the new home builders are the only ones supplying uh, new units that can be bought by uh, by the people who are who are engaged in incremental demands, right? Those new household formations, et cetera, et cetera. Mm -hmm. And so that's actually, it sets up because builders, and building activity is a transactional activity. It's not an investment activity. So that's actually beneficial. That squeezed supply, that constrained supply is good for builders. That's why we're seeing some stock price uh, strength in those in those, um, in those names. And it's also good for economic activity because it means that homes continue to get built because it makes sense to continue to build. Right. And some people look at lumber and say, oh, boy, it was, you know, it soared and cra- and effectively crashed oh that's bad that's that's bad for housing it's great for home yeah, builders, home builders. <laughs> everyone thinks that home builders <laughs> love rising prices right home builders don't care about whether the prices rise what they care about is what their cost is their input cost is relative to what they can sell the houses for mm-hmm. right that's what they care about and how much how much mm-hmm. volume they can they can pump through right that's what they're doing and often that volume part of it is benefited for, from rising home prices, but it doesn't necessarily have to be. And so to the extent that we're seeing input costs decline, particularly, you know, at, at, in 2021, like lumber costs were so high that a lot of people actually delayed construction because it was so expensive, right? Combination of, of the underlying costs plus the supply chain issues, right? Created a lot of elevated expense in building materials and challenges getting labor. And so in some ways, we're kind of dealing with a little bit of an overhang of that for the home builders. What they really care about is just that margin times volume, right? Margin times volume. And it's okay as long as there's demand for new homes because there isn't a lot of existing supply and the margins are good. They're just going to keep building houses. All right, Bob. Let's um, let's let's uh, figure out like what do you, what do you do with all this as an investor? Um, you, your new firm is unlimited funds and you're at Bridgewater for some time. So if you don't know, <laughs> nobody does <laughs> what to do with all this information. I, and I've heard you, I have to say, I've heard you talk about recently, I think it was CNBC. You kind of didn't like equities here. I mean, is this the alternative investment ah. guy talking this book or what, what, what are we saying here? <laughs> I think we're in this sort of a somewhat unusual circumstance where the macro cycle like is a very slow moving cycle towards weakening that's necessary in order to get a softening of the labor market in order to bring down inflation. Right. That's kind of, we're on that path. And so 
often when we talk to, when I talk to people, it's like, well, don't you realize X, Y, and Z shows that there will be a recession at some point? And the answer is like, yes, there will be a recession at some point. And, and we're moving in that direction. And, but it's slow. It's very slow because macro cycles are very slow, much slower than most people uh, want or imagine they are. And so I think the thing that, um, that we're seeing is that sentiment is whipping around the reality, which is like, you know, the reality is too boring for FinTwin, right? If you, if you, if you wrote about the reality every day, you'd say like each day, you know, a thousandth of a basis point of underlying GDP growth has, you know, has slowed and people would be bored to tears by what you're saying on a daily basis, right? And so sentiment is whipping around. Yeah. Asset pricing is whipping around. Yeah. The reality is kind of meandering slowly to softening. And so actually some of the most interesting opportunities that are in the market are the places where that sentiment for one reason or another has been whipped around enough so that it sort of offsides relative to the slower moving reality. And so if you look at the asset markets today, um, you know, as an example, coming into March, I'll, I'll, I'll give this example. Coming into March, when you looked at the bond market, you know the, the bond market was pricing higher for longer pretty aggressively in a way that actually looked a little offsides mm -hmm. to the upside. All right, and then we have SVB and the various issues mm -hmm. there, and now we have a bond market that's pricing you know a few hundred you know a few cuts through the end of the year, which is probably offside to the to the downside in terms of in terms of interest rates. And then similarly, I think when you look at stocks, you know, you've, you've certainly got some froth. You've got some elevated valuations. Um, you haven't really had the makings of a durable bottom, which would typically require both a decline in earnings as well as a decline in valuations. And so, you know, when you look at that relative to the slow moving reality, we're, you know, stocks are kind of in some ways look like they might be either pricing a you know, a continued rosy scenario, which seems durable, you know, implausible on a on a longer term time frame, or they're sort of pricing in like there'll be a decline and then the Fed will ease and then things will go back up and then everything will be fine, which is like a little bit the cart before the horse. And so you add that up, you kind of get a picture where it's like, well, bonds don't look that great in this environment, particularly on the short, uh, you know, on the like say two year bonds don't look particularly good and. And, and longer-term bonds as well. Neither do stocks look that great because they look a little too rosy. And so both of those things kind of work out to be something that's like not great. And, you know, for most investors, I think what that means is looking for other options that might be mispriced. Like, you know, in some ways, I think uh, gold offers a lot of uh, interesting opportunity given, you know, it really does benefit from either a higher inflation scenario than expected or from higher, you know, tail risk environments than expected. And so, you know, that's an area you could look at. Uh, in addition, you know, if, if you open the aperture a little bit from just the traditional stock and bond investing. All right. So, <clears throat> Bob, I, I 
think it's time for my final question. Oh, it's quite the tour of everything. Yeah. Structural inflation, uh, housing, yeah. <laughs> the economy, asset prices. We've, yeah. we've gotten through basically all of it. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, I, I had to hit the, you know, exactly. I had to hit all those points um, having you on. Um, either that or we'll have you on every day, you know. <laughs> so... The final question is the same for every guest, no matter what the topic. Even sometimes we have non-financial guests, and it's the exact same final question. Um, and you don't, don't know what know it what is, it right? Is. I, I probably you don't know the question. Be more prepared, but good. You know. No, 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 no. It works. It works best that way. It works best that way. So the final question is simply: If you could leave our listeners with a single thought today, what might that be? Uh, diversification is the key to building durable wealth. Uh, and, and the reason why that is, is, you know, we, we all can sit here and pontificate and talk about what we think is going to happen and what we don't think is going to happen with markets and economies and things like that. But the, but, you know, the reality is that even the best of us are only slightly better than, you know, 50, 50 in predicting what's likely to transpire. And if you're going to be successful at building wealth over time and building, uh, a strong asset portfolio. I think the the key to doing that is diversification. I think most investors don't appreciate. They might think sixty forty stocks and bonds that might give them enough diversification, but particularly in times of elevated and rising inflation, stocks and bonds are not particularly useful. So, look, if things work out okay. And, you know, growth is strong or inflation comes down, you're going to be fine on 60-40. The real risk is that inflation is more durable than you expect. And so finding those assets that help protect you from elevated inflation, like gold or commodities or things like that, increasing your diversification to a diverse set of possible macroeconomic outcomes will help you, uh, help you protect yourself from a range of circumstances that could be meaningfully detrimental to your long-term preservation of wealth. I don't All know right. if that's what you were looking for. Great answer. I, I knew it uh, would be. Yeah. I yeah, like diversification. Yeah. What can I say? <laughs> so, All right. Diversification, diversification. A one word answer. Diversification. Yeah. I'm really glad that, that you decided to come on the podcast. Thanks yeah, so much great. for being I, here. I really enjoyed it. It was, uh, it was a lot of fun. I, I, uh, I feel like I've gotten to know you a little bit on, uh, on Twitter. And, and so it's nice to finally, you know, get to, to have an actual conversation, uh, <laughs> that we can hear each other. I know. I have to say, I have to say, um, first of all, at Bob E. Unlimited on Twitter. Please follow Bob. He's a great follow for investors. All right. Well, listen, we, uh, you mentioned, you know, five years. We're not going to wait five years to have you back on. Um, you know, maybe six or 12 months, we'll check in and see where all of this giant incrementally moving uh, machine is, is going. Yeah, that'd be great. I'd, I'd love to, to get back on. All right. Thanks a lot. Thanks so much for having me. Over 1 million people around the world follow Wall Street veteran Mark Chaikin for his shockingly accurate stock market predictions. And he just gave them a dire warning. Mark says, we're about to witness a historic stock market shakeup that could soon create devastating losses for investors who don't know what's coming. As a result, you only have 90 days to move your money. 
You see, Mark spent 50 years on Wall Street at some of the most prestigious hedge funds in history, and he's been on Fox Business and CNBC countless times. But this is a financial story no one else is telling. If you let this take you by surprise, you could be in for a world of pain. He explains everything in a brand new free report available at www.rollingcrash23.com. He includes the name and ticker of a popular stock that could be directly impacted by what's happening as well. Mark warned of beloved pet brand Chewy before it fell 45%, tech company C Limited before it fell 66%, furniture company Wayfair before it fell 76%, social media favorite Snap Inc. before it fell 36%, and food delivery company DoorDash before it fell 65%. Mark even called the Amazon crash before the famous Fang stock fell 35%. So you'll want to avoid the stock in his new report immediately. Again, simply go to www.rollingcrash23.com for your free copy of this new report. I am so thrilled to have had Bob on the show. His Twitter follow is really great. Bob is one of the people who I follow him regularly, and I always want to know what he has to say. If he's on CNBC, I make sure I watch it because, look, I have some very kind of extreme views about things. I think we're in an episode like what followed the 1929 and 2000 NASDAQ bubble and the, um, you know, the Japan bubble. I'm afraid that we're in, in that kind of an environment. That's pretty, that's an extreme environment. So I need somebody with the kind of experience um, need. I want, okay. I want, I want to be reasonable about all this and I want to think it through. I don't just want to react and following Bob helps me kind of stay a little more rational and think more deeply about things rather than simply adopting a viewpoint and sticking to it no matter what you don't want to do that, right? You want to have strong convictions, lightly held, you know, you want to know what you think, If you think there's going to be a recession, it doesn't mean there's going to be one. If you think inflation is going to take off like a rocket ship, it doesn't mean it's going to happen. It may mean that you, it would be prudent to prepare for these things. And Bob's advice, and to a certain extent, my own for the past couple of years has been fairly similar. This is the time to make sure you're prepared for a wider than usual variety of, of likely scenarios. So, um, really happy to have him on the show. And, uh, I, I, I can't, I almost can't wait for six months or 12 months to go by. So that's another interview. And that's another episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. I hope you enjoyed it as much as we did. We provide a transcript for every episode. Just go to www.investorhour.com. Click on the episode you want, scroll all the way down, click on the word transcript and enjoy. If you like this episode and know anybody else who might like it, tell them to check it out on their podcast app or at investorhour.com. And do me a favor, subscribe to the show on iTunes, Google Play, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And while you're there, help us grow with a rate and a review. Follow us on Facebook and Instagram. Our handle is at Investor Hour. On Twitter, our handle is at Investor underscore Hour. Have a guest you want us to interview? Drop us a note at feedback at investorhour.com or call our listener feedback line, 800-381-2357. Tell us what's on your mind and hear your voice on the show. 
for my co-host, Corey McLaughlin. Till next week, I'm Dan Ferris. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Stansberry Investor Hour. To access today's notes and receive notice of upcoming episodes, go to InvestorHour.com and enter your email. Have a question for Dan? Send him an email, feedback at InvestorHour.com. This broadcast is for entertainment purposes only and should not be considered personalized investment advice. Trading stocks and all other financial instruments involves risk. You should not make any investment decision based solely on what you hear. Stansberry Investor Hour is produced by Stansberry Research and is copyrighted by the Stansberry Radio Network. Opinions expressed on this program are solely those of the contributor and do not necessarily reflect the opinions of Stansberry Research, its parent company, or affiliates. You should not treat any opinion expressed on this program as a specific inducement to make a particular investment or follow a particular strategy, but only as an expression of opinion. Neither Stansbury Research nor its parent company or affiliates warrant the completeness or accuracy of the information expressed on this program, and it should not be relied upon as such. Stansbury Research, its affiliates and subsidiaries are not under any obligation to update or correct any information provided on the program. The statements and opinions expressed on this program are subject to change without notice. No part of the contributor's compensation from Stansbury Research is related to the specific opinions they express. Past performance is not indicative of future results. Stansbury Research does not guarantee any specific outcome or profit. You should be aware of the real risk of loss in following any strategy or investment discussed on this program. Strategies or investments discussed may fluctuate in price or value. Investors may get back less than invested. Investments or strategies mentioned on this program may not be suitable for you. This material does not take into account your particular investment objectives, financial situation, or needs, and is not intended as a recommendation that is appropriate for you. You must make an independent decision regarding investments or strategies mentioned on this program. Before acting on information on the program, you should consider whether it is suitable for your particular circumstances and strongly consider seeking advice from your own financial or investment advisor.